This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Lifestyle is Medicine listeners. It is 2023 and it is the start of our fourth season. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for, for, for sticking with me and just thank you in general for all the support that I've gotten. I'm really looking forward to this fourth season since the last time you heard from me, uh, I focused a lot on on the kids and family. You know, the kids are in really cool growth stages and it's a lot of fun to watch them just become best friends and starting, you know, school and, and sports. And it's really been a fun stage. And I focus a lot on the business and uh, coaching, you know, coaching with the local high school. And it's been busy, but chosen busy. And I wouldn't have it any other way. But I am really excited to get going. We have really, really cool guests to start off this fourth season. Uh, We have our guest today, which I'll tell you about in a minute, but also we have an expert on cold exposure and cold showers and cold plunges coming up. We have a glucose and blood sugar uh, expert. We have someone coming on to talk about career burnout and career choices and how to make changes at some point in life if you are not happy. And today, today we have Michelle uh, Rothenstein, who is a registered dietitian who focuses on heart disease and both management and prevention. And I learned a ton, a ton from this conversation with Michelle. We go over the genetic versus the lifestyle components that make up heart disease. So, you know, what parts are genetic and what parts are controllable and how much can we utilize our lifestyle habits to mitigate risk and what signs should we be looking for both physical signs and signs that are silent you know what should we be asking our doctor for in terms of of testing what numbers should we look at how do we look at those numbers and of course how do we eat you know how some specifics in terms of the actual habits and some changes you can make and one of my favorite topics you know we get into childhood eating and building good habits for our kids from the start. And Michelle just has some really good insights on on that as well. So again, it was a great conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. I know you're going to enjoy the next handful of weeks, but really excited to kick off today with Michelle. And as always, please don't forget to rate and review and let me know what you think. Enjoy. All right, listeners, we are on with Michelle. Michelle, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I am very excited. I was very excited when I first saw your background and what you talk about specifically, but I was even more excited once we had our pre-conversation and realized that we are, you know, it's always validating we're always on the same page with some major uh, components as well. But before we get too deep, can you just give the listeners a little um, intro and background on yourself and what you do? Sure. 
Um, so I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, and I specialize in, specialize in heart disease management and prevention through science-based nutrition. So what I really focus in on is risk factor modification and making sure we're doing everything possible to prevent a heart attack, a stroke, or a cardiovascular complication. And we do this through personalized science-based nutrition. So really getting into the bulk of looking at all risk factors, not just one, and really emphasizing how do we make this into a long-term behavior change? Because it's important to know that heart disease is a progressive disease. So if you eat one meal or one month, you're not eating so healthy or lifestyle is not optimal, that's not really going to make a big impact. It's really what we're doing consistently over time that's really going to be impactful because heart disease takes year, months, years, decades decades to really cause any complication or any symptom um, or any plaque formation in the arteries and so forth. So we're really looking at optimally doing it for the long term and really making sure we are optimally having good blood vessel health and heart health and really getting in the foods that you need to get in for optimal metabolic risk management. And we'll talk more later about that spectrum because, you know, we talked about you know, when things become symptomatic and how that isn't necessarily the real onset of disease. But where I'd like to kick off with is more, you mentioned the risk factors. And, you know, if you take risk factors and put it into two general pieces, there's the genetic risk factors, which I think where people spend a lot of time and focus. I think we get very scared when we hear, oh, I had a first degree relative, a parent, um, you know, either pass or just maybe just affected by heart disease. So that means I am at risk versus the other side of the risk factors, which are our lifestyle components. Could you touch on the difference between the two? Yeah, um, I think it's important to really emphasize that genetics, there, there's a couple of different ways of looking at the genetic pool. So if you have a first, your mom, your dad, your grandparents, if they've had a premature heart attack, so a heart attack or a heart event younger than 65, that does that could put you at an increased risk. But it doesn't mean that it's inevitable. It doesn't mean that you will follow that same course. This is the time where you need to be more proactive than the average person. So the younger you work on making sure your risk profile is optimal, the better. And the thing that's key here, though, is that your numbers, like your LDL cholesterol, your blood sugar, your liver enzymes, your, your kidney health, your blood pressure, the standards could be a little bit different than the general population because you have a genetic, you may have a genetic component to it. So we need to be more proactive. And when you put on that proactive lens, and take it, take it as, okay, I need to be more proactive and have a more empowered heart-healthy approach, you can live a long, healthy life without having any cardiovascular disease or complications. So we need to be more proactive. It's not that you should say, oh, I'm, I eat healthy, I'm fine, I'll be fine. We still need to be a little bit more proactive in our risk assessment once we know there's a genetic component. But there's another component that's important to know. So that's if you have a family history. If you have a genetic metabolism disorder, that like familiar hypercholesterolemia or familiar triglyceremia, it means your body can't properly metabolize LDL cholesterol or triglycerides where your levels are way above normal. And that needs to have a little bit more of a different approach in order to reduce your risk. So the main thing is, is 
you need to know your numbers regardless of if you have a genetic component or not. But if you have genetics there too, we can silence those genes if we're super proactive in our lifestyle and in our nutrition. So take this as that, okay, I know there might be a red flag in my in my trajectory, but if I am, if I actually take this very seriously and look at it from all degrees, we're, we're going to help reduce the risk of anything happening in the future. Absolutely. And then there's the lifestyle component factor, right? There's there's a risk factor that comes from that. And, you know, what percentage would you say comes from that versus all the genetic components that you just listed? So we've seen a, we've seen a lot of research that shows that individuals who have a high genetic score, um, if they implement a heart healthy diet, a heart healthy lifestyle with exercise, stress management, sleep management, all of those things, we can actually reduce their risk of having a cardiovascular event, similar as to someone who doesn't have those genes. So lifestyle is very very important. Um, the earlier we intervene on this, the better our results are. But no matter where you are in your health journey, being more proactive, really understanding your profile and knowing, okay, if you have high LDL, if you have high blood sugar levels, if you have high blood pressure, lifestyle can help lower those and improve them significantly. And so we need to be more proactive in that regard. Sure. You know, what I thought was kind of going back a little bit, what I thought was fascinating is you talking about how those baseline numbers for the LDLs, the HDLs change or at least slightly when you have a genetic component, how maybe under context, you might have to look at those numbers differently. I think that's fascinating because while there's a lot of people that don't get blood testing done regularly anyway, or young enough anyway, even those that do typically aren't getting genetic testing. So would you put an importance on genetic testing at a younger age, in your opinion? So you, a lot of times it might not, a full genetic testing may not be available just yet. That's the honest truth, right. but you can all check your lipoprotein A. All labs have it. And that number doesn't change. That's a genetic risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It means that you may have an increased risk of plaque formation in the arteries. You may have an increased risk of heart failure. You might have an increased risk of vascular issues, thrombotic events. And so we need to be more pro active in that regard. And, and you can test that early as well. Um, we really need to be looking at, we need to be doing routine tests. A lot of times people think, okay, heart disease only happens in an old man or in a someone with a big belly. And I always emphasize that heart disease does not discriminate on body weight and size. I see so many people in my practice have a heart attack who are athletes, who on the outside have a six pack, who look great. Their doctor dismissed all of their risk profile because their weight was normal. Weight is one risk factor for heart disease, and it's not the only one. Um, so we have to look more comprehensively. And that's really important a component to reduce this global burden. I mean, cardiovascular disease is a number one killer globally. Yet 80% can be preventable through science-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine. That's huge. That's why I got into this yeah. field about right. 15 years ago, because I was like, well, where's the disconnect? Why are we having so many of these complications and deaths when we can prevent them? And a lot of it is just unawareness or not as being proactive as we have to be in order to prevent this from happening. That's a huge number. 80% is a huge number. And it's consistent across the board with the big four. It's consistent with 
diabetes. It's consistent with uh, many of the brain diseases, not all, but many of the of the dementias and the Alzheimer's that are out there. And that, you know, these are, and that's a big, I think when that number is impactful. So I think very often we get caught up in this, well, I'm prone to it. And for my family, it's it's brain diseases. I the majority of my grandparents and you know my and the one you know once removed cousins even, there's a lot of dementia, a lot of dementia in our family. And it would be very easy to say, like, well, that's my inevitable. That is my path. Or to go the other route and say, well, no, if I if I know that's 80% preventable, why not take every action I can as soon as I can to start changing that. And then to quickly touch on the, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up about the specifics of genetic testing, because, you know, the <clears throat> 99% of what I listen to is on these topics. You know, I admittedly, this is where it's where I enjoy listening to, but everyone you listen to, all the professionals out there talk about, you know, genetic testing, genetic testing, knowing your genomes, knowing things. To your point, that is not necessarily some easy, like, oh, cool, I'll just pick up my phone and make an appointment to have that type of testing done. Like it's it's expensive. It's not always available. You have to find the right doctor. So it is hard, but it is encouraging to know that within heart disease specifically, there are numbers you can focus in on that can tell at least a big part of the, the bigger story. Yeah, but um, I also think yeah. it, okay, so let's say you did get genetic testing. I have many clients who send me their genetic testing and it's what you do with that information. Um, I always say, okay, you get the genetic testing about are you going to be empowered by it or is it going to cause more anxiety? Because stress is a big component to all of these diseases also. And we need to look at it from a decrease of anxiety and a whole person approach to ensure that that's the right method for you. Because if it empowers you, for all means, go get it. But if it's going to cause anxiety, we need to also assess it that way too. Because right now we don't really have anything to medication-wise to silence these genes. It's more of, well, how do we approach it from a lifestyle perspective? And so if that empowers you, by all means. The other thing I want to bring up to you, and I think this is super important, is when I was, you know, in my in my internship, my dietetic residency, I was working in in different places, the ICU clinic, the kidney clinic, the weight loss clinic, and I niched down into cardiology because they're all commit, they're all connected. But everybody always chooses one thing to focus on. And you know, when you say yeah, eighty percent in all of these different categories, it's because everything's connected. We're all connected awesome. through our blood vessel supply, which is essentially our heart health. So when you improve your heart health you improve your brain health, you improve your liver health, your kidney health. These aren't exclusive lifestyles. They all are feeding optimal health and longevity. Um, So, you know, we need to realize that our body is one unit and we're not looking at, oh, well, I have kidney disease, so I I can't eat any potassium or protein or phosphorus. It's no, we need to look at all of this together to ensure that you have good blood flow and your body is working in the optimal way. Yeah, I, I love that you said that because, you know, I, when, after my dad passed the brain tumor, you know, as, as listeners know very well already, I, I got deep into looking at the why and the why and the why. And the more you dig in, just to add to your um, awesome point is of everything connected, everything's connected even one step lower on the health totem pole of people that just want to aesthetically look different and building strength and, you know, having more energy day to day. It's all, it's all the same recipe, generally speaking. You know, we we need to eat better. We need to sleep better. We need to take care of our bodies better, whether it's creating longevity, decreasing risk of disease, feeling better every day, feeling more productive every day. So we we hit those 
those career goals we want to hit. You know, that's there's such, you know, that interconnectedness spreads so much wider um, than people want to give it credit for. And in my mind, it's such a relief to know, like, hey, there isn't a million different things I need to focus on. Well, this 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 pocket of habits for, are for longevity, but this pocket is to make me a better business owner and this is to make me a better parent. You know, of course, there are details within those, but by just focusing on my everyday health. I, I can overlap so many things. I think that's a, it's such an awesome opportunity that we do have control over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously in each one, there are a couple of things you need to add. You know, if someone For has sure. high blood pressure versus not, there's definitely right. things that are right. decreased and we need to emphasize that. But yeah, we need all of them are connected and we need to look at a whole body approach. If you're just looking at one organ or one little thing, you're missing the bigger picture that's so important. Awesome. I, I love it. Let's go back to the spectrum that we've we've kind of touched on real quick because we, we also got into starting to look at numbers. So can you talk a little bit about, about this spectrum and when symptoms become more physical or more obvious for heart disease and you know where maybe the, the more the silent symptoms are and where they can begin on the spectrum? You know, heart disease is hard because it's a silent condition. Most people have unfortunately have a cardiovascular event and then they realize that they didn't control these. And I love having these conversations with individuals because I want people to think about it before that event happens. So in my private practice, a lot of people come to me after a heart attack after a aortic dilation and they want to do surgery on their body and they're like, I don't want to do surgery. It's after a finding, but you don't usually feel those symptoms until they're later in the stage. For instance, high blood pressure. There's a lot. I remember one of my first days in my, my residency, someone came in with a blood pressure in the 200s over hundreds and they were in kidney failure and they never knew that they had high blood pressure. They just had, they came in, they weren't, they were throwing up and they, they went on dialysis right then and there. And that's crazy because had they had known a decade before, five years earlier, they could have prevented this, this uh, kidney, kidney disease, you know, and that happens with stroke that happens with so many things. So a lot of it is silent. You don't really feel anything until it's in the more advanced stages. And so we need to know our numbers and we can't take them lightly because you might not ever feel anything until it's too late. Oftentimes there is a subgroup of people who come to me after they have a high calcium score and they only did the high calcium score because their doctor was like, you need to go on a statin. You need to go on a statin. They're like, I don't want to. So the doctor's like, okay, fine. Let's see if you have plaque in your heart and plaque in your arteries. And if you do, then you have to go on a statin. So then they take their calcium score and their plaque formation is out of this. It's it's out off the charts. And they're shocked. And they're like, Michelle, am I going to die tomorrow? And they're scared of that. And I always emphasize, no matter where you find out on your journey, we can intervene and prevent the progression and prevent cardiovascular events. But the earlier we start, the less disease you may have or the less complications you have and the less burden on your heart. Remember, if your arteries are clogged, if your arteries have high blood pressure and you don't notice it causes your heart to overwork. Your body is amazing. It doesn't bother you. You know what it does? It enlarges your heart. It stiffens your heart so that it can continue doing what it needs to do to keep you alive. But after a while, 
your body can't do it anymore. It's at capacity. And that's when you have a cardiovascular event that could have been prevented. So that's why these preventative checkups and knowing your numbers and taking ownership of your health is the only way we can prevent cardiovascular disease in our generation and younger generations. It's really important that we are more proactive in our health and take control, take it as an empowered approach. You know, you go to your doctor once a year or maybe once every couple of years and your blood pressure is high that one time. And you're like, oh, I was just nervous. Please check it at home. I want you to check in at home because that one time blood pressure that was high in the office that you ignored could end up causing so many issues down the line. Um, and if, but we can control it. So if it's a little bit high, that's when you can control it and live a long, healthy life without ever having to worry. So I want this to empower people to say, you know what, if I know more about my health, I can change my lifestyle. I can change my nutrition and prevent anything from happening in the future. Instead of looking at, oh my God, I have genetics against me. All my numbers are bad. I'm going to have a, a cardiovascular event. No, take it as an empowered approach. I'm checking my blood pressure. I'm bringing it down. I am improving my 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 risk profile. And then you don't have to worry about that. So the knowing is so important because many times nobody feels it. Yeah. And I love how you touched on that, that what, those, what could be a one-off number, the, the one time your blood pressure is high. And if it is, you know, maybe that is the case, but maybe it's not in just seeing more consistent numbers. You know, here at the gym, we talk a lot about your body being different at every moment and how it's just constantly ebbing and flowing entity that's a product of your last 24 to 72 hours. You know, so whether we are stepping on our in-body scale for body fat or we're doing a metabolic performance test that shows very specific numbers of, you know, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. And, you know, how, you know, we say, you know, we got to take these numbers with a grain of salt, along with the context of your last three days, because who you are in that moment at that test is, isn't necessarily who you are always, unless the last 72 hours is consistent. If that really is how you're living every single day, well, then yeah, we can take this metabolic snapshot and say, yeah, th these are probably your numbers and we can probably use these numbers. Here's where we create your zone two cardio. Here's where we create your intensity cardio. You know, we're here's how we use those numbers. However, if you just came off of New Year's Eve weekend, and we do that test yesterday on the second, and you really had a blowout weekend. <laughs> we, we we drank a ton, we slept very little. Well, maybe those aren't the day we want to use those numbers, but that doesn't mean we just stop looking at the numbers. Now let's see them a few more times to see consistency. Is that the true you? Is this you every day? You know, and then sometimes we go a step further with, you know, you have these products that give you readiness scores, you know, and every day, you know, are you, is today a really good day for workout? Is it not? So I just, I, it's a long-winded way of, of going down into your point of, you know, blood, th these things change a lot, right? Your blood pressure and your heart rate and some of these numbers really ebb and flow. So it's important to see them not just once every five years, but a little more of a consistent pace. Oh, Definitely. Yeah, it, it's so important because again, you won't feel it. Some some people will have headaches if their blood pressure is very high. Some people will have shortness of breath if they're experiencing some heart failure. Some individuals will feel a lot of swelling in their legs or when they're walking, they'll feel pain in their legs. That could be a sign of, you know, PAD, peripheral artery disease. There are some signs. So, hey, don't ignore any of those signs, but just know that 
that might not be early stage. So early stage, you don't really feel it. In the later or mid stages, yes, you can feel it and you should definitely not ignore those signs. Like I remember a client came to me, so many clients come to me saying, I'm, I just thought my, my fatigue was just getting older. And like my performance is just, oh, you know, I'm getting older. I can't keep up, keep up with 20 year olds. I'm, I'm 60 and 70, just old age. And she's like, once I actually listened to my body and ate all these therapeutic foods that you asked me to do, I have better aerobic capacity than my, to my, to the 20 year olds that I'm yeah. walking through my office. And I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't be feeling fatigue or joint pain or, or, you know, gastrointestinal inflammation or anything like that. Those are red flags that we need to take a deeper look and understand what's going on. You're, I always tell my clients, you know, better than I will ever know your body. You need to listen to those signs and make sure that you are addressing them. Don't ignore yeah. them because yeah. that's going to be a red flag too, because the earlier we intervene at any point, the better it's going to be. Um, and I also say this, I can't tell you how many people have heart attacks and they say, oh, I just have acid reflux. They wait, they wait, they wait, they wait. And that puts so much extra pressure on your heart and they go into heart failure. The sooner you intervene when you have chest pain, when you have jaw pain, when you feel something different, the better your results will be from a um, recovery standpoint. So my best thing is listen to your body and really respond. You know when things are off. Don't blame it on this. Don't blame it on that. Check it out. See what's going on. Worst comes to worst, it was nothing. That's great. But it might be something that we need to address too. Yeah, and and not justifying things as your quote-unquote normal or your body of friends normal. Yeah, I think we see that a lot of, well, it's, power in numbers, it's comfort in numbers. Well, my entire circle of friends all eat poorly, all feel bloated and tired all the time. My circle of parents, you know, well, we all have young kids and none of us sleep well. So it's just, it's just, it's what it is. And while there might be certain very good reasons for lack of good habits, you know, not taking for granted when your body is giving you signs of, hey, regardless of what the situation is, you, you probably need some help or change here. Um, do you see that a lot? Do you see kind of that that comfort in numbers response? Oh, of course. They, you know, you go to your circle and you say, you're like, yeah, me too. And everybody kind of normalizes it, which is not. That just brought me back to, you know, you mentioned parents. Um, after postpartum, you know, women go through a lot for labor and a lot of them, some people can get postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is essentially heart failure after labor. And the signs are fatigue. The signs are signs that you can attribute to just having a baby in terms of you're not sleeping, you're not necessarily prioritizing yourself, you're prioritizing the baby. And I always say like, you can't ignore that because severe fatigue um, or just fatigue and shortness of breath in general, if we don't address that timely, it can progress very quickly. And so anytime that's not, I wouldn't go to your circle of friends to get a normalized response, right. go to your doctor, check it out, see what you need to prioritize for yourself. Because there's always stages in life where we are giving to other people or we're focusing on on our career, focusing on other aspects. And when you not do, when you don't prioritize your health, it goes on the back burner until it needs to come on the front burner. And we don't need, we don't want to do that without your health. My dad, when I was growing up, he always says, without your health, you have nothing. And I always take that because it's true. Yeah. Without your health, you can't take care of the people you love. You can't work the job you love or hate or whatever it might be to get you to get you right. financial 
flexibility. You need your health. So prioritize it because nobody else will. Yeah, I, well, that's well, that fantastic advice because you're right. You know, sometimes we're powering through thinking we're doing a service to others. But if we're the only person that can perform that service, we better be at our best to continue performing it. And, and to, you know, hopefully summarize and correct me if I'm oversimplifying, you know, what you said before, taking symptoms and then putting a number to it. Going to the doctor, going to your health professional, going to someone like you who understands these numbers the right way, and, and then seeing, is what I'm feeling a quote-unquote new normal? Is it a product of of just short-term health? Can we get deeper into the numbers a little bit? Could we take maybe just two or three components of whether it be a blood test or you know something that you would go to your doctor for, and can we talk about what is normal in those numbers, why it's tested, and you know why you label it as so important? Yeah, I think that's great. You know, first off, it's important to know that doctors are brilliant. They're great at what they do, but they're not mind readers. So I see so many people go in and say, hey, my doctor said I was fine. Nothing to worry about. Right. But did they take blood work? Did they ask you questions? Did you tell them what your symptoms were, what you're feeling? Because they're not mind readers. You got to communicate. And I know that a lot of the biggest complaint a lot of times is I didn't have time or I was nervous. Write down your questions beforehand. Bring that to the doctor's office. Make sure you're getting your questions answered. Um, And if they don't have the time, find someone who will give you that time because it's your health and you, you need to advocate for yourself. A lot of times certain doctors won't necessarily get a very comprehensive blood profile. But one of the things I often see not asked on blood tests that I would request because I think it's super important is HSCRP. It's high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Um, Some places, some lab calls it cardio CRP. It basically assesses for underlying low-grade inflammation. And heart disease is an inflammatory condition. It doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is inflamed. What it means is that there's something brewing that's causing some inflammation and we need to address it in order to protect your blood vessel health, your heart health, your immune health, your gut health, your brain health, your whole health. Um, And so I like to look at that to make sure that you don't have any underlying inflammation in your body. Um, If you have underlying inflammation in your body, with some signs without testing it, you know, if you get sick very often or it takes a long time for you to get over a cold, that can be some a sign of it. Um, you know, if you have an increased waist circumference and it's really hard for you to lose weight, you might have some underlying inflammation, which makes weight loss even harder to achieve. Those are some signs to look out for. If you have gut issues, like if you have constipation or diarrhea or excessive bloating or indigestion, that could also be some underlying inflammation that's not appropriately addressed. So HSCRP is very important for everybody to routinely get on their physical. And I like it to be less than one for the lowest cardiovascular disease risk. It can be elevated from many things. So if someone has high cholesterol levels, that's inflammatory. If they have insulin resistance, that can be inflammatory. If they have poor gut health, that can cause inflammation. Um, There's a lot of things that can cause inflammation, but this test, the, the high sensitivity type does not 
look for acute inflammation. So if you just get CRP, that's more of acute inflammation. If you are fighting a cold or a virus, that might be elevated. Your HSCRP is the underlying inflammation. And so when you're sick, your body has an inflammatory response. Um, and so that it can, it can take the virus and basically, you know, your immune system will kick it out of your body. If you have low-grade inflammation and then you get a virus, your body has low-grade inflammation and now it's going to have a higher inflammatory response. Your immune system has a hard time, you know, effectively getting rid of that virus and can cause issues. So HSCRP is one of the ones I really like to look for in a blood test. I love that. And I'm, I'm writing it down as a person who is about to go get blood work done admittedly for in the first time in a few years. And, you know, and again, I want to find normalcy in numbers, but I'm definitely that person who went through COVID, went through the stress of opening a business right before COVID hit. And then, you know, allowing this to become my focus, I also have a five and a three-year-old at home and a 12-year-old stepdaughter, you know, so I'm definitely a person that since 2019 has not purposefully not gone to look at numbers, not gone to a doctor. It, it truthfully has just not, has not even come up until like, I'm sure like many people have come to you, you know, the past few months, it's one of those like, like, yeah, is it a stressful point? Sure. It's a stressful point of where the business is and state and the kids are young and we're just balancing a lot as a family. But, you know, energy has just felt different. Productivity has felt different. And that was enough for me to be like, you know, I haven't done in a while. I haven't gone to see numbers. I haven't. And I haven't. And we also just moved to Downers Grove. I didn't establish a new doctor. Like there's a lot of barriers that kept coming up every time I did think about going to get checked out. So as you're as you're listing these, I'm I'm selfishly also listing like, oh, well, here's some things to think about. So this is very helpful to those like me who maybe are re-motivated to look at their numbers and maybe would go in and maybe not to the fault of the doctor, maybe blindly say like, I'm just assuming they'll, they'll put whatever I need to on, on a test. Yeah. So what I would also, and I really appreciate that honesty because we're all humans and we all, life gets away from all of us, you know? Um, I have kids too, and you're trying to take care of all these little humans, making them the best little humans they can be um, yep. and doing what, you, what you're passionate about. So yes, taking that time to do it is important. One tip I would recommend you do is even though Please. you may not have gotten it, relatively, you know, you didn't get a year ago, maybe you got it a couple of years ago. If you have access or you can call your previous physician and get access to your previous lab report, I would love for you to compare your numbers. Because what happens is, is most people wait for their doctor to call them and say, hey, this is bad. This is good. Can I tell you, when we look at research, a lot of physician error comes into play there. They're looking at thousands of blood work and sometimes they might not necessarily tell you something's elevated or they don't tell you it's elevated until medication's required. So you could be walking around with a high cholesterol level that's causing damage, but until it's yeah. needed for medication, they're not gonna intervene because they're medical physicians. That's what they practice. You know, For them, they're not gonna tell you the preventative piece because that's just not their specialty. Sure. Um, so I always say, get a copy of your blood work and really try to compare it to previous years because if you see your cholesterol levels trending up, red flag. If you see your blood sugar levels trending up, red flag. If you see things that are going in the wrong direction, that's your time to say, whoa, what do I need help with? What am I doing differently? How do I bring this back into normalized levels? That's such great advice because things can be within a quote unquote healthy spectrum, but still be trending in the wrong direction from yours. And 
you know, a couple of just fitness examples. I look at my heart rate every day, you know, resting heart rate, you know, typically the textbooks will say are anywhere from 60 to 90 beats a minute is a healthy resting heart rate. Well, one, those are very different numbers. 60 and 90 are not the same thing. Same thing but, with so many ranges, so yes. many blood work. It's well, like thousands yeah. apart. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Terrible. It's huge. And I think this is where you really hammers home your point of if I'm someone that's regularly in the low 50s, specifically, that's, you know, where my, you know, and you can call it athletic rate of cardio, whatever you want to call it. But technically speaking, I'm, I've been in pretty healthy low 50s most of my life. But if I notice that for two weeks, I'm in the 70s. Well, if I go to see my doctor that day and they see 71, no one's going to bat an eye. Great. Healthy number. Get back out of here. If I say, hey, doctor, I'm always in the low 50s, but the past month I'm averaging 71, a, a good doctor might be like, well, that's let's maybe we should dig in there a little yeah. bit, you know, and, and the same thing. We look at body fat the same way of, you know, if healthy body fat is anywhere between, you know, gen, for, for bald people, forgetting gender differences, anywhere between 12 and 25. Again, greatly different numbers. You know, talking about double the difference between 12 and 25. But, you know, if I'm regularly at 14, 15, and now I'm at 21, again, if someone comes to me the first day and that's where they level off, I'm going to say, you're in healthy range right this second. But if you tell me you have trended up from a regular 15 over the course of the last decade, well, that 21 may become 31 if we don't stop the habits that are causing the upward trend. So I, I, I love that idea of just not knowing once, but but understanding the differences. And if this is your first time getting any numbers, understand that maybe would you say you need them more regularly for a short period of time to understand norms and not just where you are in that moment? I think it depends where it is. So for instance, if your LDL cholesterol, the first time you take it is 65, great. Um, right. Get it done in the next year, you're, you're okay. But if it's like 110, 105, okay, we want it a little bit lower than that from a proactive standpoint, also depending on your other risk factors. So maybe you check it you know, every six months, another time, six months from there. But if your levels are very elevated, let's say your LDL cholesterol is 150 or 160, you should be doing a dietary and lifestyle intervention, primarily nutrition, because that's really the main thing that will lower your LDL cholesterol outside of medication. And you want to bring that down. So you want to check it every three months until it's a normal value. You don't want to wait a year when it's high because that can do silent damage. You don't feel the LDL cholesterol go into your arterial wall and cause plaque. That is not a feeling anybody can feel. Um, right. It happens silently. So you knowing your numbers and being proactive and making sure that they're staying within normal values is imperative. I mean, a lot of my my clients who have had heart attacks, their doctor's like, wow, your number is perfect. I'll see you in a year. They're like, no, 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 no. My LDL is 40, but I'm coming every three months and you're rechecking it because it needs to stay there. Um, and so that's that's something you can ask for. So definitely being more proactive if it's out of range, but if it's within normal range, every year is fine to recheck and just making sure unless you feel any different or there's a major lifestyle change or a major event that happened, you could check it earlier, but once a year should be more than enough to give us that consistency. I, well, I love the message too of just being in control of your health and asking for what you need and educating yourself because to your earlier point, Doctors are human and they also are busy. And, you know, sometimes as humans, 
if you come in and you're a seemingly healthy person, doesn't don't you know visually look like you're unhealthy, you know, you aren't obese, and your numbers are within healthy range, I think many might say, cool, see you next year, which isn't necessarily a bad thing from them. They did see healthy numbers, but it's still up to us. You know, we shouldn't be putting all the ownership on our health professional. We should also be taking some ownership, right, of of our own health and saying, well, based on my research, well, at least ask the question of, do you think I'm the person that needs something more often? Yeah. Um, right. And I also think it's an important thing to realize because I get this a lot. Why didn't my doctor tell me I needed to get this lower? Why didn't my doctor tell me I need to do nutrition? Why did I have to have a heart attack to then go and see all my blood tests so high? And I'm like, you know, a lot of it is that they're brilliant at what they do, but they're medical professionals. They're there to give you medicine when needed. And a lot of people think that they're there to talk about nutrition. They don't get any training in nutrition. They don't get any training in exercise. They don't get training in stress and sleep. And so we have to take that, take that stand back and realize that the preventative care might need to come from ancillary support um, as needed to help get yeah. there. Because I see so many times doctors go, just lose weight and you'll be fine. I've had people who had a heart attack and the doctor's like, just lose weight, do any diet, take your statin, take your, uh, you know, your brilliant, so take all of your medications, you'll be fine. They have another heart attack. And, you know, they come to me after their second or third heart attack and they're like, you know, my doctor just told to lose weight, I lost weight, but it wasn't, you know, I still had these heart attacks and we work to look at all the red flags, right? They're on these medications. Their LDL wasn't low enough with diet. We brought it lower. Their waist circumference was high, even though their BMI was normal. That means there was inflammation. You know, we really attack all angles. Cause if you just look at one thing, you're missing a lot of other things. Um, and so we need to be more proactive and really take more ownership of our health in order to truly reduce cardiovascular disease and really just for optimal longevity. Uh, it's so let's start getting into some of the specifics of nutrition now. You know, so yeah. we've talked a lot about prevention and numbers and, you know, realizing that this is very case to case, you know, that there's a lot of context that's needed for you to give advice to a specific person. So generally speaking, though, you know, you start working with someone, they do have some risk factors. Where are you starting to look at first when it comes to food choices specifically? Yeah. So I look at their risk factors and then I prioritize based off their risk factors, what we are trying to achieve. So for instance, one person might come to me and they have high insulin, fasting insulin levels. They have borderline high blood sugar levels. They have elevated liver enzymes. There's, they have a little increased waist circumference, stubborn weight loss. To me, this is insulin resistance needs to be addressed. So in that particular patient, I would really focus on the macronutrients that they're consuming. So when we talk about insulin resistance, it's the body's inability to process glucose. Glucose, our carbohydrate, which is our main fuel for our brain. We need it. Um, but so we need to assess the balance of the meal. Do we have enough heart-healthy lean protein? Do we have the right amount of complex carbohydrates? Do we have enough of the heart-healthy fat? Are we listening to hunger quotient? Are we listening to our 
hunger scale in ensuring that we're eating at the right time and in the right portion to allow for good metabolism of our food. Then we kind of go into the little micronutrients and therapeutic foods that can help. So whether that is acetic acid from vinegars or whether that is making sure they have enough chromium from Brazil nuts and pears and broccoli, um, making sure they're getting all of what they need to help with that first step of weight loss, right? So that's one, one person that might come to me. But then another person might come to me who's thin, never was overweight in their life. They're athletic and they had a heart attack. And what are we going to do? And so when I look at that person and they've had stents, I'm looking more at their blood vessel health is compromised. They're having some underlying inflammation that caused that to happen. They probably have a little more oxidative stress because they were working out, but not replenishing it with enough antioxidants and the balance after their workout. And they're probably low in nitric oxide. So I need to make sure we are prioritizing that first, because that is so important. I want to prevent plaque from forming in this person, but I also want to make sure that we're stabilizing the plaque that's there. Because once you have plaque in your arteries, you can't get rid of it. We don't want to get rid of hardened plaque. That's dangerous. That can cause a blood, that can cause a blockage. We want to stabilize it on the outer layer of the artery. So in that person, I'm focusing on blood 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 vessel health. Um, you know, some of those people have high blood pressure, but some of them don't. And so we have to look at that risk factor that we need to prioritize. Um, and then we look at the whole entire picture of it. Okay. The term superfoods has become popular in the past you know, handful of years. Are there foods that you really believe, do they, you know, broccoli is one that comes up often, that just pack a bigger bang for their buck. Are there certain foods like that where you say, hey, I don't know every listener listening to this podcast specifically, but here's a handful of foods that generally speaking tend to come up more often or not in your in your assessments? Yeah. So this is the important part. There's not going to be only one exclusive food that's going to sure. have one nutrient. So for instance, <laughs> right. so everyone always asks me, if you had to tell me the top food that I should be eating, what would it be? And a lot of times, if I had to choose, and this is going to make some of your uh, audience members not really happy, <laughs> I would probably say that it's beets. And that's one of the foods that's like either you yeah. hate or you love. Yeah. Reason being is because beets, when you th- say superfood, it's really about nutrient density. Okay. So if you just eat beets all day and that's all you eat, that actually can cause kidney stones. Um, We don't want that. Um, (laughs) If you have beets as a part of a healthy diet, you're adding in potassium, you're adding in nitric oxide, you're adding in fiber, you're adding in essential nutrients and antioxidants that help your blood vessels vasodilate, open up right? So they're really good for that. But if you tell me I hate beets, I'm not going to find a way to get them in your diet because that's not going to work long-term. So then I'm going to say, okay, you know, do you like spinach? Do you like arugula? Do you like garlic? Do you like radishes? And if you tell me yes to some of those, then I might say, okay, that will help with nitric oxide. This will help with potassium and we'll find the combination that works for you. So 
there aren't any superfoods that everyone must eat. It's more about achieving nutrient sufficiency. If you get enough of potassium, magnesium, calcium, fiber, lean protein, complex carbs in what your body needs, that is going to optimally make it thrive. So you don't, and a lot of times what I hate about superfoods is that people think, well, the more I eat it, the better it will be. And it's a dose response in the sure. same way of too little is not good, but too much can cause other issues too. And so the amount matters and the balance really matters. So it's important that you don't, you know, when the kale, there was like a whole kale trend and a whole <laughs> cauliflower trend where people were putting cauliflower rice, cauliflower pizza, everything like, okay. But when you choose that every single time you eat, you knock out another food group and you need to balance it. So variety is important. So I don't, I'd hate the word superfood because we continue yeah. Kinds of thing. Oh, this is super. Got to eat at breakfast, lunch, dinner every time I eat. And A, you get bored of it. Sure. And B, it's not, you don't, you can overdo certain nutrients. So you have to do it in the right quantity in order for it to be effective. So if you have, you know, a beat every other day, that's a great way to get in that. You know, we need other foods too to help with the nitric oxide pathway, but that's a great start. And that that's a great thing to add in, but don't overdo it because we tend to think in all or nothing. If I'm going to have it, it needs to be all the time or it's not effective. And that's not true. Yeah. I One, that was probably what I at least assumed the direction of your answer was going to be. And, you know, I, I also am aware of the there's, there's an annoyance to those questions that we often get the, you know, if I had to pick one exercise, what is it? I'm like, well, where, where do you start? Um, but, you know, and, and like you, I can go to, here's the movements that cover the most, you know, your, your hinge movements cover a lot. You know, if I, if I, if I can get more people to do a deadlift, right, it probably covers and checks off a lot of boxes. But what if that person is all already really efficient in that movement? And now that's all I'm spending time on is something they're already efficient in. Well, now I'm missing to your point, you know, every yes is a no. Every everything I spend a lot of time on, I'm spending less time on something else. Every food I'm eating, I'm spending less time eating other things and creating less biodiversity, right? So there's the comparable thing in fitness too of, you know, we get married to what we believe is the best and then that's all we focus on. Then it's like, well, great, but now you just keep checking off the same bucket over and over and over and over. But meanwhile, the other unfilled buckets remain remain unfilled. Yeah. You know, so I, and, and just like as part of like exercise in general, I get questions a lot of, should I do aerobic? Should I do resistance? Should I do like, what is the, yes. you know, what should I do? And it's like, <laughs> you need to do both of them. It, yes. It's not. And I always add a third component. I'm like, where stretching is a, is a category of its own for <clears throat> blood vessel health. Let's, let's make all three of them super important. Yes. And I think everyone just wants, well, if I could just do one thing, what it would be. And the main message is yes, all of this matters, but start where you are. You don't need to be doing all of them, right? You know, somebody who never goes to the gym, I'm not expecting them to be, you know, yes. going there every day, start slow, just move your body. I want you to do one thing. And the same thing goes with nutrition. So people come to me and hate vegetables. You know, if I had to say, obviously a plant forward diet is super important for all aspects of health. Um, you can have, that doesn't mean it's plant exclusive, meaning you don't need to be vegan. 
You don't need to be um, in order to be heart healthy. You can have animal protein, but it does need to ha- be focused also on a variety of plants in order to optimize your health. Um, but we need to look at where you're starting and then add in those those elements of habit formation. You know, I really focus at two to four habits per two week time period um, because it really helps us to focus on well, what are the challenges? What can I do to support you? And I always tell my clients when they're feeling good about them, like, do you think you could do this in a year or five years from now? And if the answer isn't a resounding yes, then we have to still work with it because it's really important that we're building that for long-term long health and long-term heart heart health and reducing the risk from a long-term perspective. Yeah. And and that, that habit number is a, a common concept that I talk about here on this podcast and habit change is a skill. What we need is irrelevant if someone is not good at changing habits. It doesn't have, doesn't, hasn't gained that skill yet. And, you know, and all the habit change professionals will tell you, for some people, the number might be one. If, if you can't, if you're not good at changing habits, one, one might be your number, changing one yeah. thing at a time and really hammering it down and, and making it become consistent before you start becoming a person that can say, yeah, you know what? I can handle three, four or five changes at a time, but I can juggle that because I've gained that skill. Habit change is a skill. And I think that's that's a transition point into you know something I want to make sure we got to on this episode was the idea of uh, childhood nutrition and developing yeah. habits early. And I this will not be the first time I admit that I think one of my biggest pet peeves is the phrase "kids can handle it." You know, we we just throw junk food at our children because we assume that well because they're young they are in some way just immune to the negative effects of eating. And one, obviously, that's just not true for a lot of reasons. But two, what we're probably more seeing is that we just don't see the immediate, you know, just because your kid doesn't gain weight the next day, doesn't tell you they feel bloated, doesn't tell you they feel certain ways, we keep assuming they can handle it. So can you talk on the importance of gaining healthy habits earlier in in our youth stages when it comes to nutrition and dieting? Not dieting, diet, diet, not dieting. I can talk about this. (laughs) For, for a long period of time, <laughs> so much to say. Yeah. Um, I want to not scare people, but give a little perspective. So I'm all about the research and looking at science-based articles. And I look at a lot of journals every single day. And we see that eight-year-olds who had an autopsy because they were hit by a car or had a premature death had plaque in their arteries at the age of eight years old. Okay, heart disease is a progressive disease. It can start really young. And we need to teach our younger generations about healthy nutrition, because if we don't, they're not going to build those habits for, for next generations. And, you know, when they get older, they're going to have already plaque in their arteries at the age of 20 and 30. I went to um, the Academy of Cardiology since symposium a month ago. And this big um, cardiologist, Dr. Valentin Fuster, mentioned how we have an issue. Our cardiovascular disease burden is going to be even worse than what it is currently because of our kids and how we aren't teaching them healthy habits. And that there's more obesity, diabetes, fatty liver transplants in younger children because of the lack of good nutrition. You know, I'm a mom of three amazing boys and, you know, everyone, a lot of people ask me all the time, like, oh, how do your kids eat vegetables? My kids won't. And I go, I 
they are in the kitchen with me since they were standing up. They were on this little 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 step stool, you know, helping me do put put the Brussels sprouts into the pan or whatever age appropriate things that were there, they were in the kitchen learning. We were talking about, I have a garden in my house. We would plant seeds together. We still do. We talk about where food comes from. We talk about the importance of why broccoli makes us strong. We're not talking about things that are scary, but we're what it means for them. And they eat what I eat. So I don't cook a separate meal for them. I don't pop out things from the freezer because I want to make sure that they are eating the same thing I do because when they're not with me and when they're off in college, God willing, I want them to be eating those things without doing it for mom. They're doing it for them. And I know that this can be a battle. It can be hard. It's an investment in time to do this with your children. I'm not going to make that you know, sugarcoat that at all, but it really helps with their health, but also their mindset around food. It builds a healthy relationship around food and it makes them realize the importance of health at a young age, which leads them to success from a health perspective. And, you know, later on, I talked to so many um, people about the importance of making sure we're reducing risk. And everyone says, calls a lot of these metabolic risks and cardiometabolic diseases as lifestyle diseases. And if we don't teach and, and, and do this at a young age, we're setting up our younger generations for worse health than where we are now. And that's just not, it, it's sad. We really want to protect that. So, you know, if you're listening and you're a mom or a dad or a grandfather, you have nieces or nephews, like, you know, do a fun activity. Um, I used to, we'd have, we have pizza nights on Saturday nights where we make our own pizzas and, you know, we take out the dough, we, we roll it out. Um, you know, we, we put our sauce or my kids put their sauce on, they have all their vegetable toppings and they love it, right? Like you can do fun activities with them. Um, Um, You can do, get them involved as much as you can, bring them to the grocery store, make them choose what they want to, you know, if they're interested in a certain vegetable or fruit or whatever, get, get get a new thing each week or every month so that they're excited about it. It's so important to involve our children in, in food because they're the next generation. And if we don't, you know, chronic disease is going to get worse and it's already really not in a good state. Yeah, you can make the argument in every way, right? Besides health, it's economically too, right? It's it's our our system is already stressed as it is, and teaching the next generations the importance is key. And you know what? You you mentioned the time thing, and I agree. I think there's no reason to sugarcoat how much time is needed, but we're putting this time in other ways. We do understand that because there are parents out there who are making sure their kids shoot plenty of basketball shots and swing plenty of baseballs because it's so important to to develop them early in sport. There's parents spending so much time making sure their kids get a job early because it's so important to understand work ethic. And we give them chores around the house. And we spend a lot of time on that. We, to your credit, in our pre-conversation, we talked about, you know, it, we prepare kids to be able to do laundry in college and to, you know, just the things they need to do to be independent. This is an area that is still lacking that we are spending time on development. We are doing that, but this needs to start gaining the importance that we are giving 
other things that are also important. I agree with these things. I agree that, you know, making sure kids understand the importance of becoming physically active. Awesome. We, we do that naturally through sport. We probably don't do it enough through fitness and health, but we do it through sport, which is okay. You know, for me, it covers at least some of the, some of the same areas, but we are not covering it the same way nutritionally and just in general from a health and longevity perspective. And um, so I, I love the points you made. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think it also goes to the point it's hard because we're in an environment where it's not so easy, right? Like my kids, I send them lunch, but if you look at the school lunch, I mean, you're not really looking at the great, the healthiest options. And, you know, when you talk to people at school, a lot of them say, well, kids won't need it, or we don't have money to give that, give them this or give them that. Or you go to a restaurant and you get a kid's menu. I've never gotten a kid's menu for my children because I, it's atrocious of what you think a kid should eat. Um, And we need it. So you're, we're working against a lot of standards that are already out there. And so it is difficult, but what you can control in the home and what you can teach your kids is the most important thing to, for them to be able to do this on their own, but also for them to get those nutrition that they need. A lot of kids have high cholesterol that's not being tested for. A lot of kids have high blood sugar levels that aren't being tested for high blood pressure. That's not being tested for. And it goes silently even from a young age. And that causes a lot of, it just breaks my heart. We need to be proactive in there for our kids before any, so that they stay healthy and we need to teach them in there. And, you know, whatever you can do to influence any child in your life positively through nutrition is important. But this goes back to also say, the the parents need to have a solid understanding of nutrition and they need to be doing the part. You can't ask your kid to eat broccoli every night if you don't. Yes. (laughs) You can't tell your kid you have to do this if you're not that example for them. So really it comes from you first and with the intent of a family dynamic and a family way so that everyone's on the same page. I'm not a short order cook. I can't be, I don't have the time for that. And neither should anybody. Everybody eats the same thing. You know, when, when someone has a heart attack and they have young kids, I always say, they're like, they love junk food. How am I going to do this? I'm like, this is a whole family adventure. You're going to, it's, it's healthy food. It's delicious food. And everybody needs to be on the same page, especially because your kids might have an elevated risk also, since you've had a young heart attack. So let's go on the same page. Cause you're not only going to help yourself, you're going to help your kids. And while it is a little more effort in the beginning, like you said, that effort is such a long, impactful change that we want to make. And so it's worth that investment in time. 100%. And I couldn't agree more. If with we don't have the example, kids learn by seeing, not by being told repetitively, but then seeing the opposite. That's always going to be a counterproductive uphill battle. And we've, we've got to lead. Got to, we got to lead from, from the forefront and be, I mean, it's, in my, in my opinion, that's what our job is as parents. We are supposed to be leading by example for everything. I think those, I think that's a responsibility that we take on when we choose to have children is to create the best version of themselves, give them the most potential possible and to create the best members of society we can. Um, and I think that's, that is our, our responsibility to hold. Oh, hundred percent. And even if your kid won't eat a vegetable in the beginning, if he sees that you're doing it or she sees that you're doing it, you're their hero, no matter how you want to look at it. Yeah. Like 
you make it seem that that food is safe, that food is good for me without saying anything, that teaches them what the right thing to choose from and how to nourish their bodies. So examples are paramount, especially in the nutrition realm with this too. Awesome. Michelle, this has been awesome. Can we tell people how, you know, the best way to find you? Yeah. Um, you can find me on my website, entirelynourished.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram at heart.health.nutritionist. Um, you can, you know, find me just by Googling my name, Michelle Rothenstein. <laughs> um, I always love to hear from everyone. So, you know, you can feel free to sign up to my email list and I don't bombard your email, but you could just say hello and I'm happy to help. Um, I hope this was informative and I really hope that it empowers you to take one small step to know more about your health. Yeah, Michelle, this was more than helpful. This was really, um, really eye-opening. And I know it's the same for listeners. Um, listeners, definitely check out more of Michelle's content. This was tip of the iceberg on a lot of huge concepts that, as Michelle said, we could have spent many, many hours talking about. Um, I've already got ideas for, for follow-up episodes here, Michelle. So hopefully you're in on that too. Um, yeah. So again, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, and I look up, I definitely look forward to a follow-up one day. Likewise, I'd love it. All right, listeners, you can uh, stick around and we will talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.